I came across an article on a law enforcement website, and they posted some of the excuses from drivers who were caught breaking the law, who were caught speeding. And uh, these are actual excuses that the officers heard. One driver said, Oh, I thought the sign I-95 meant the speed limit. Glad you didn't catch me over on SR-210 earlier. <laughs> Another driver actually said, I wasn't speeding, I just got a haircut and it makes me look fast. <laughs> Another one said, It snowed six inches and I radar a car driving 54 in a 30. Stopped her and she matter-of-fact said to, to me, Duh, I know I was going fast. I was trying to get the snow off my windshield so I could see where I was going. <laughs> I think I've done that before. <laughs> Another one, I checked a 17-year-old kid on I-71 near MP91 just south of Grove City, Ohio, at 101 miles per hour. He was driving a Ford, gold Ford Explorer two-door. When I told him I checked him at 101, he threw a fit and wanted to argue with me, saying he was only going 85 miles per hour. Me, being the curious cop, asked him why he thought he was only going 85. And his response was, my speedometer only goes to 85, and I had the gas pedal pushed all the way to the floor. <laughs> I like this one. My car has a recall on it for unexplained acceleration, and I'm on my way to get it fixed. <laughs> And an officer by the name of Chuck Irwin reported, pulled over a Corvette doing 155 zone, late at night on highway, no traffic. I told the driver, you are flying. Unless you have a pilot's license, you are going to jail. Yes, he handed me the pilot license. Yes, I let him go. <laughs> a woman officer wrote this one. I stopped a lady who was crying when I walked up. I asked what the problem was. She said she had gone shopping for the first time after having a baby and nothing fit right. I handed her license back and slowly backed away. Nothing good was coming from this. <laughs> One more. One of my cop friends told me a story. He pulled over a couple for speeding, asked why the driver, male, was speeding. The male said his wife, the passenger, was pregnant. They were going to the hospital. The officer said that was fine, even though he knew the truth, and followed them to the hospital to make sure everything went all right. When they got to the hospital, he escorted them in and made sure they got into a room right away. Finally, the male admitted to lying. The officer didn't write him up, figured the hospital bill would be enough. <laughs> we have a pretty good idea of what our relationship to the civil laws in our country are. If we do the crime, we pay the fine, right? And, but what about our relationship to the law of God? In Romans chapter 7, we come to one of the thorniest, most hotly debated issues in Christianity. What is the believer's relationship to the law of God? Are Christians required to keep the Old Testament law or not? And if not, why do we make such a big deal about the Ten Commandments? And before we get to the end of chapter 7, it gets even thornier. Just who is the wretched man of verse 24? This wretched man who gives us a graphic account of his inner moral turmoil, who does not do the good that he wants to do, but does the very thing he does not want to do, and then he cries out for deliverance, then immediately appears to thank God for it in verse 25. Is this person regenerate or unregenerate? Or we would say, is this person born again or not? And if the person is born again, 
Is she a normal or an abnormal Christian? Is she or he mature, immature, or backsliding? In other words, is Paul talking about our experience and struggle with sin and the law before we were saved? Or is this our experience with the law after we were saved? We're starting to get neck deep into these thorny issues that over the centuries have deeply divided Christians and, and denominations. And of all things, the division comes over differing views of what it means to be holy. What does it mean to be sanctified? What does it mean to live godly in an ungodly world? There are those who say that the wretched man cannot possibly be a Christian, that if you have that big of a struggle with sin, you couldn't possibly be saved, and you certainly couldn't be sanctified. I listened to a sermon this last week where the preacher said tongue-in-cheek that he hoped the rapture would come before he got to the seventh chapter of Romans. Said that to his congregation. So we need to approach this section of Scripture very carefully, and by that mean, by mean as we should approach all of Scripture, all of God's Word, very carefully. And John Stott points out that it's never wise to bring to a passage of Scripture our own ready-made agenda, thinking that it's going to answer our questions and address our concerns, because he says that's to dictate to Scripture instead of listening to it. We have to lay aside all our presuppositions so that we can conscientiously think ourselves back into the historical and cultural context of the text. And then we shall be in a better position to let the author say what he does say and not force him to say what we want him to say. So the first thing which we need to take note is the main topic, what we'd call the main idea, the main thought of Romans chapter 7. What is the main idea of the chapter? What is Paul's main point? And we see that Paul is struggling with the place of the law in God's purpose. And we see that in the first 14 verses of the 17th chapter, the law, or it's called the commandment, or the written code, or the oldness of the letter, is mentioned in all of the first 14 verses. And then in some, in almost 35 times, or 35 times, the law is mentioned in the whole passage from Romans chapter 7, verse 1, to the fourth verse of, verse, of chapter 8. So Paul's main concern is, what is the place of the law in Christian discipleship? What is the place of the law, if any, in gaining victory over sin? Now, we've already seen in our study of the book of Romans that no man was justified by keeping the law. No one was declared righteous by keeping the law. God's righteousness, Paul said, was revealed in the gospel apart from the law. Sinners are justified by God, not through obeying the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Abraham himself illustrated this principle. Since the way he received God's promise was, Paul says, not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. And so it shows us that the whole vocabulary of the gospel, of promise, of grace, and faith, is totally incompatible with law. So now we ask the question, what about holiness in the law? What is the place of the law in sanctification and holiness in becoming like Christ? So I want you to turn to the seventh chapter of Romans again, to the second verse, page 1386. 
the second verse of this seventh chapter, because I want to point out a phrase that occurs three times in the first six verses. If the law is the main subject of the entire chapter, what is, we would say, the sub-subject or the, the subject that's part of these first six verses that relates to the main subject? And I want you to circle a phrase, and that phrase is released from the law. Your translation, if it's King James Version in particular, might say loosed from the law. So look at the end of verse 2 of Romans chapter 7, the end of verse 2. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law. Circle that released from the law concerning her husband. Released from the law. Now look at verse 3. And I want you to circle the phrase that says in the New American Standard, free from the law. And I think that's the phrase that it uses in the other translations as well. The end of verse 3. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. Now jump down to verse 6. Verse 6 begins, but now we have been, there it is again, circle released from the law. Released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. The main thought, the main idea of these first six verses of Romans chapter 7 is we have been freed from the law, released from it, set free. So now we can go back to verse 1. And start putting this together. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking in those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? And here, Paul gives a basic principle. It's an axiom. He lays down a basic principle which he assumes his readers know. Do you not know? That's Paul's way of saying, hey, you guys know this. And speaking generally about the law, it has authority or has jurisdiction over a man only as long as he, he lives. The word for jurisdiction or has authority over here at this point is the word kiriuo. Does that sound familiar if you know any kind of Greek? What's the Greek word for Lord? Kyrios. And so the word here kiriuo means to lord it over. Lord it over. It's how it's used in Mark chapter 10 verse 42 where Jesus said the rulers of the Gentiles Lord it over their subjects. It expresses the domineering authority of the law over those who are subject to it. But, says Paul, this authority is only limited to our lifetime. The one thing that invalidates the authority of the law is death. Death brings release from all contractual obligations involving the dead person. So in legal terms... If death super intervenes, relationships established and protected by the law are said to be ipso facto terminated. Ipso facto means by the very fact, by the very fact of death, death brings release from all contractual obligations. So law is for life, death annuls it. Paul states this as a legal axiom, universally acceptable and, and unchallengeable. To be a little crude about it, let me put it this way. You don't see the police officer arresting or writing a ticket to the drunk driver who died at the scene. Right? Yeah. He died at the scene. He's, he's been released from the law. But Paul picks out a whole better, much better illustration than I did because it makes his point. 
He uses the example of the law in marriage. We see this in, in verse 2. He says, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while she is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. Paul uses an obvious example that's, that's universally accepted, and at least at that time and, and virtually everywhere, that you know, and I've never officiated at a wedding ceremony or heard wedding vows which did not contain the words, till death do us part. Or as I often have the bride and groom say, for as long as we both shall live. And so as an example of this general principle of death releasing from the law, Paul chooses marriage. He's, we'll see he's going to do it for a very specific person or reason. But in implying the application of marriage, he also extends it and takes it further. Because death not only changes the obligations of the dead person, it's obvious that these have been canceled. The dead person has no obligation, but also changes the obligations of those survivors who had a contract with the dead person. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as as long as he's alive, or until death parts them. But if her husband dies, she is also released from the marriage vows. She is indeed released from the law of marriage itself. Literally, the text reads that she is released from the law of her husband, the law concerning her husband, the law relating to her and her contract with him. Now, the contrast is clear. The law binds her, but his death frees her. In fact, the release is complete. The strong verb used for release is cardigeo, which means to annul or to destroy. The apostle is saying that the woman's status as a wife has been abolished, completely done away with. She's no longer a wife. And so then in verse 3, Paul draws a conclusion. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. If she, a married woman, is joined to another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress, she incurs the stigma of adultery. But if her husband dies and she remarries, she's not an adulteress because she has been released from the law which had previously bound her. So what has made the difference? How is it that one remarriage would make her an adulteress while the other would not? The answer, of course, lies with her husband's death. The second marriage is morally legitimate because death has terminated the first marriage. Death secures freedom from the marriage. Now, one of the things we need to be very careful about here is that we don't want to make Paul's analogy here walk on all fours, as it were. Paul does not intend his analogy to be a complete or comprehensive statement of what God's word teaches about divorce and remarriage, okay? Because Paul's analogy does not take into consideration abandonment by an unbelieving spouse or sexual immorality when that has taken place. That's not Paul's main point here. That's not the points he's trying to make. And so I'd encourage you to study the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, and the teaching of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The point Paul is making here with his analogy is that death, death 
always in every case nullifies the marriage. The surviving spouse is released from the law and is free to join with another. That is what Paul is saying here. So Paul goes on to give a theological application in verse 4 of Romans chapter 7, the fourth verse. He says, therefore, as he's applying this, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. Think about that for a minute. You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit from God. So now Paul is turning from the, the general idea of law to the actual law of God. In the translation you use, the word law might be capitalized here. Paul has been talking about human laws, law in general, little l, and the release from marriage, and now he turns to the law of God, capital L, the Old Testament law, what's called the Mosaic law, the law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. God's law also claims Lord over, over, lordship over us while we live. And here's how Paul applies his analogy. He doesn't explicitly say so, but it's thick with this as you read it. That we were previously married to the law. And so we were under the authority. God's law. We were married to the law of God. We were under its authority. But in the same way, as death terminates a marriage contract and permits remarriage, we also died to the law through the body of Christ. We were married to the law, but now we have died to the law so that we might remarry or belong to another. And as Christians, who do we remarry? Who do we belong to? We are the bride of Christ. The church, believers, are the bride of Christ. Now we are married to Christ. And so verse 4 again. He says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, that you might be joined to Jesus Christ. You were bound by the law. There's been a death. Now you are joined to Christ. Now, two questions confront us about this death, which we are said to have died. First, how did it happen? Paul says that it took place through the body of Christ. Now, the phrase the body of Christ here is not talking about the church, even though body of Christ is used in that way several times in Scripture. The body of Christ here is Jesus' physical body. It was his physical body which died on the cross. It's the body which he gave for us when he died on the cross. And through our personal union with Christ, we have shared in his death. We saw that in Romans chapter 6. If you want to turn back to the 6th chapter of Romans, at the 3rd verse. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. When Jesus died on the cross, we shared in his death. Death occurred. Jesus died but we died with him. Remember that? Verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, 
that our old self was crucified with him. Remember what Paul said in Galatians? I have been crucified with Christ. I died with him. In order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And not only are we freed from sin when we share in the death of Christ, we are released from the law. We have died to the law through Christ's body. And secondly, what does it mean that we have died to the law? It means that the law, with all its prescribed penalties, no longer apply. They have no hold on us. We are released from the law and all those obligations, all those penalties, all that inability not to be able to keep the law, we are released from that, totally broken off, that we might belong to another, that we might belong to Jesus Christ. And then Paul is here spelling out the purposes of our dying with Christ to the law. The immediate purpose of dying with Christ is that we might belong to him, we might belong to another, namely to him who was raised from the dead. Look at that in verse 4 of Romans chapter 7 again. Therefore, my brethren, you're also made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, that is to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. The immediate purpose of our dying with Christ to the law is that we belong to Jesus Christ. We're married to him. The ultimate purpose is that we might bear fruit to God. That it be a fruitful union with Christ. And we see the contrast of the fruit in verses 5 and 6. At verse 5. For while we are in the flesh, and here's the fruit, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Remember, the wages of sin is death. But now, verse 6, we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness, oldness of the letter. Once again, Paul is drawing that comparison. Verse 5 is describing the pre-conversion days of the believer, believers in Rome. How did they live before they came to Christ? And he says they were controlled by their sinful nature. They were controlled by their sinful passions. That's the way all of us lived before we came to Jesus Christ. We were controlled by our sinful nature, by our sinful passions. And then verse 6 moves ahead to the time when they were no longer in bondage to the law. By basic inclination, people are controlled by their lower nature, what Paul calls here their sinful passions. And apart from this fundamental insight into human nature, you know, it's really impossible to understand the evil that's plagued the human race. You know, you ever watch TV and go, how could things get so bad? You know, what's, what's going on here? And I think that's becoming more and more a question as we must be approaching the, the, the end of the world. You know, history is simply the story of humanity gone wrong. Did you ever think about that? History is the story of humanity gone wrong. Although we're made in the image of God, we inherit that propensity for wickedness determined by the fateful choice of the first human being, Adam. We are fallen creatures. We are in need of hope from without, from 
from, with, from beyond ourselves and, and every scheme people propose for individual and social change is determined by their own inclination for personal advantage. Do you ever think about that? Why do they pass laws in Washington, D.C.? Why do they pass laws anywhere? Why do they try for social change? It's because people want the advantage for what they get out of it. By nature, rebels oppose restrictions. You can't tell me what to do and what not to do. When placed under the law, people instinctively find themselves at odds with the lawgiver, and they act accordingly. The response of their sinful passions does rebel against authority, and, and says Paul, opposition to God inevitably ends in death. And then verse 6 of Romans chapter 7 completes the comparison and, and turns the corner. Verse 6, but now we have been released from the law having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. As Paul has pointed out, the law has jurisdiction over a person only as long as the person lives. Therefore, when a person dies, he or she is discharged from all legal liabilities and penalties. Because we as believers in Jesus Christ died in Jesus when he paid our sin debt on Calvary, we are thereby released from all the moral and spiritual liabilities and penalties under God's law. Galatians 3.13 says it this way, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But don't miss this. We're going to see this in the rest of the chapter, but uh, I want to put it right up front here so we don't miss it. Paul has already declared as forcefully and unambiguous, I should have practiced that word without any confusion, <laughs> that freedom from the law's bondage does not mean freedom to do what the law forbids. Paul would say, may it never be, may Ganeta, freedom from the law doesn't mean that, oh, I can go out and sin now because grace is going to increase. Remember that? Freedom from the law doesn't mean that we can go out and do what the law prohibits. Freedom from the law does not bring freedom to sin, but it brings just the opposite. It brings freedom for the first time to do what is righteous, to do the right thing. And that's a freedom that the unsaved person does not have and cannot have. In Christ, we have been discharged from the law, and having died to that, in which we were constantly held down under the law, we are free to serve Christ in the newness of the Spirit. You know, how's that song go? My chains fell off, and I was, I was free. We are free to serve Christ in the newness of the Holy Spirit rather than in the oldness of the law. Formerly, we're in bondage to written regulations. Law was our old master, but now we are free to serve our new master, Jesus Christ, and serve him in a new way in the Spirit. The shift from law to spirit is a shift from legalism to true spirituality. It really is unfortunate that so many believers continue to understand their Christian experience 
within an ethical framework determined by law. Because to serve in the Spirit is to live the resurrected life. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. What is the power of the resurrection? And how do you live in that power of the resurrection? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, we are to live in that. And that means to serve in the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to claim our rightful place in Christ, dead to sin and freed to live for righteousness. We now live lives that bear fruit for God. <coughs> so I'm going to close with a question. And the question is probably going to raise more, answer, or more questions than it answers. But those answers are going to come as we go into the rest of chapter 7. And the question is this. Is the law still binding on Christians? Is the law still binding on Christians? And are you still expected to obey God's law? And I'm going to answer it, yes and no. <laughs> yes, the law is still binding on Christians in the sense that Christian freedom is freedom to serve, not freedom to sin. We are still slaves, but now we are slaves of God and of righteousness. But also, no, it's not binding on us because the motives and the means of our service have completely changed. Why do we serve now as believers? Not because the law is our master and we have to, because, but because Christ is our husband and we want to. Can you see the difference? We serve not because the law is our master and we have to, but because Christ is our husband and we want to. Jesus said, he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him. Not because obedience leads to salvation, but because salvation leads to to obedience. And how do we serve? We serve in the new way of the Spirit of God. For the indwelling Holy Spirit of God is the distinguishing characteristic of the new life in Christ. So for our justification, as we study that in the first four chapters of Romans, our justification then is we are not under law but under grace. And now we're in that section for our sanctification. We serve not in the oldness of the letter but in the newness of the Spirit. We are still slaves, but uh, the master we serve is our Lord Jesus Christ, not the law. And the power by which we serve is the Spirit, not the letter. The Christian life is serving the risen Christ in the power of the Spirit. Now, having reached this point of verse 6 in Romans chapter 7, we could go over to Romans chapter 8, and we could go straight over there because Romans chapter 8 is going to elaborate what the meaning of life is in the Spirit of God. What does it mean to, to walk in the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, to serve in the Spirit, to, to have newness of life in the Spirit? You can see that in verse 1 of Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit is life in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. But that's going to have to wait for at least two or three messages. Going to have to wait for a few weeks. Because the Paul, Apostle Paul knew that his insistence on liberation from the law would have been so provocative to his readers and even people today that he must take the time to anticipate 
the, the answer to their objections. You know, as people are listening to what Paul wrote then, and maybe some of us today are listening to, what do you mean, totally set free from the law of God? It's like a motorboat going in their minds. Can you hear it? But, 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 but. And so Paul is going to now consider for, for several verses the but, 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 but motorboat that we have going in our mind concerning this whole idea of law. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, now as we, we take a turn and we mentioned from Paul's words today in Romans that uh, when Christ died on the cross, we died with him. That we were baptized into his death and we were raised to walk in newness of life. Life in the Spirit with our Savior Jesus Christ. And Father, now as we come to the table of the Lord Jesus, and as we partake of the elements, the bread which symbolizes the body given for us, Christ's body, the cup which signifies his blood being shed for us. And we remember that through his shed blood, we have forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins through his blood. And by him giving his body, we have been freed from sin and death. And as we've learned this morning, Lord, from the law. Through the giving of his body, we have been set free. Father, I thank you that in a very vivid way, as we come to the table of the Lord, you are making this, through your Holy Spirit, very clear and very meaningful to us, Father. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.